How are y'all? Okay, yeah, good, very good, you all right? Good deal. I see we got a lot of people in the fan section right here. Co Noel, thank you. Um, one of the funny things uh, is that um, this week uh, I gave uh, Jake the announcements, and these were longer announcements than I think we've had in the past like year and a half. And uh, there are often times where people uh, will make like huge sacrifices in serving. And so like some of you guys uh, don't really enjoy children that much, but like you kind of sacrifice and serve our children's ministry, which is a huge blessing and a huge sacrifice. We thank you for that. Uh, Jake really does not like doing announcements. Uh, and we joke about it all the time at our elder meeting and all of our elders except for Jake is gone today. And uh, so he's emailed me back and said, is this some sort of punishment or something? Um, and so thank you, brother. You did a good job. <laughs> um, there's your, there you go. <laughs> um, for those of you who were here last week and uh, heard the story about the couch on my front yard, uh, it is still there. All right. Um, this has nothing to do with the sermon this week, by the way. I just kind of wanted to share this with you guys. Uh, I was driving and I was kind of exiting my driveway. And as I was going by, I saw my neighbor outside and my neighbor was like looking and I kind of gave like the politely, like, you know, neighborly hello. And he looked at me and looked at the couch, and then just shook his head. And I was going to invite him to church, all right? But if he found out that I was the pastor, and this couch, that really isn't even mine. I don't know what to do with it. It's just chilling in my front yard. It would probably be a shame to the gospel. And so uh, that has nothing to do with the sermon. I just wanted to do a brief counseling session. So thank you. All right. Um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Uh, we are going to be jumping all over the place today, but you can start off in the book of Revelation. Uh, we will be there, and then we will, uh, once again, jump around a lot today. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there should be some under every second and third chair somewhere around you. Please, please, please take and keep that. That's our gift to you. We want you to have the Word of God, and so um, please feel free to take those home. If you want a nicer Bible, just stick around after church. People are prone to leave their Bibles, and you can take that, all right? Um, you can also follow along on your smartphone. Uh, if you you have the YouVersion app or the Bible app, underneath the tab section, uh, you'll find the word live. Uh, click on that, type in the well Austin. You can follow along that way. You can also take this link and put it right into your browser. We want your eyes on the word, okay? We want you to see these are not the words of me or uh, of any man that ever stands up here and preaches that these are the words of God that we are trying to submit to and live our lives in light of. And so we want you to see the word and to be able to be impacted by it, all right? Um, this week we're starting a new Easter series, okay? It's a short kind of three-week series looking at uh, who Jesus is. What does the scriptures proclaim about who Christ is? So we'll be focusing on different aspects of Jesus and what that means and what that looks like for our lives. And so if you're not familiar with church, okay, if, if you're new, if this is uh, your first time or your first time in a long time, then um, this is a great time to be here over the next couple of weeks because you'll get to kind of see some of the intricacies of the Christian faith and what we believe and why we believe what we believe. And so um, if you uh, are familiar with this, I would encourage you, man, invite friends. It's just a good time to kind of focus on who Jesus is as we walk toward Easter and what we celebrate uh, as a body, which is the death of our Savior. Um, so we'll be focusing uh, this week and over the next two weeks on different aspects of Christ. And we'll be using one verse in particular. So Revelation chapter one, um, if you are there, you can turn there. Revelation chapter one, and it will start in verse four. It reads this. Grace to you and peace from him 
who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne. So we'll circle back around to this verse in one second and we'll actually tackle this, but this is the verse that we're basing kind of our sermon around over the next couple of weeks. You see that God uh, was, right? He is and he is to come. And that's what we're gonna be focusing on is kind of this eternality of God, this eternality of Christ that Jesus has always existed, that he is currently present, living and reigning, and that he will exist into authority and kind of what that means and looks like. And so this week we're focusing on the who was aspect, all right? Christ who was and is and is to come. We're focusing on the who was aspect. And so uh, for you type A people, okay, uh, I don't do this often, though I did this a couple of weeks ago, but I'm going to give you a brief outline of the sermon, all right? So here's your early Easter gift, okay? Um, we want to, first of all, look at the, the uh, historicity of Jesus, the fact that he is eternal, the fact that he always was God. We're going to look at it uh, from three different angles, okay? First of all, we want to look at the fact that Jesus was indeed God who has existed from before time began, before the creation of the world, that Jesus was God. That's the first thing we're going to look at, okay? Jesus has always existed as God. The second thing that we're going to look at after we're done kind of covering that is that Jesus was indeed a physical, literal man who lived on this earth 2,000 years ago, who walked on this earth, who suffered, died, and physically rose from the grave. And we're going to look at some of the claims and some of the, the proofs of that. So we want to look at how Jesus is God, how Jesus is man, and then thirdly, what what does that mean for our lives? If these things are true that we're going to be talking about, then what does that actually mean for you and I today as we go about our day-to-day -day lives, all right? And so um, that's where we're going to go. Once again, we're going to be jumping around to a bunch of different scriptures today because I kind of want to highlight the, the, the whole truth of the text and what scripture kind of lays out, all right? So firstly, Jesus is God, okay? Jesus is God. Scripture cannot make this point any more clear than it has all throughout the text, several texts, several books, whole books are kind of dedicated to the fact that Jesus is actually God. All right? He's not some, just a man. He's not a good teacher. Uh, he's not an idea, but he is a, a personal being, but also an eternal God. Okay, So let me give you a couple examples. So Revelation chapter 1, uh, we're going to pick it back up in verse 4 again and read verses 5 and verse 8. Okay? It says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia... Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Now jump down to verse 8, okay? I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So there we go, we're hitting that again, okay? Now, Here's the important thing I want you to get. This is talking about God the Father, okay? This is not necessarily talking about Jesus Christ. And so I don't wanna act like this is actually talking about Jesus when it's not. It's talking about God the Father, but that's a very, very important thing because if this is truly God the Father speaking, if this is uh, God kind of holistically, then when we narrow into the person and work of Jesus, it's important to see the similarities here. So we see God saying, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the first and the last. This is God the Father. But jump down just a few verses to verse 17. Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. When I saw him, this is Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Well, we know, okay, even if, if you're kind of loosely familiar with Christian doctrine, you know that uh, God the Father never died, 
right? This one says, I lived and I died, right? Like, I, I died. We know God the Father never actually died, so this must indeed then be God the Son that is talking. This is Jesus saying, hey, look, I lived and I died, but he's actually equating himself with God by giving himself the same title that we just gave to God. I'm the first and the last. So God the Father says, hey, I'm the first and the last, and Jesus says, yeah, me too. Right? I, I'm the first and the last too, I have always existed, and I will always exist even until the end. So Jesus says he's the first and the last, right? And you might say, well, man, isn't this about God the Father? Well, yeah, that's very intuitive. It was indeed. But this is also talking about Jesus, okay? Uh, flip over toward the end of this book, Revelation chapter 21. Um, pick it up in verse uh, 6 and 7. Revelation 21, verse 6. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And so here we go. Once again, there's this claiming of I'm the first and the last, the the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha and Omega are the Greek letters, uh, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. Um, And so it's kind of like the fraternities and sororities, how they like name themselves some sort of Greek lettering, right? So it's like Alpha, Chi, Alpha, right? Or or Phi, Beta, or Delta, Sigma, Kappa. I don't even know if those are actual fraternities. I'm just saying random Greek letters, all right? Um, But this is God's kind of fraternity. This is sorority, right? He says, I'm Alpha and Omega, right? But he keeps making this point over and over again. I'm Alpha and the Omega. I'm the first and the last. I'm the beginning and the end. He, he's trying to repeat who he actually is. And repetition is an important thing in the Hebrew language. It means that there's a sense of, uh, 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 of importance behind what they're saying. But they're trying to emphasize what's going on. So it's kind of like us putting bold or underline or uh, 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 italics or, or capitalization, right? Like this is what this text is trying to do. I'm Alpha and Omega, first, last, beginning and end. Okay? Now, go to uh, uh, chapter 22 and pick it back up in verse 12. This is now Jesus talking. If, you, if your Bible has color letters, these are, are in the red colors now, right? Meaning this is Jesus talking. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. You think he's trying to stress something here? Right? I'm the Alpha Omega, first, last, begin, man. I'm Alpha Omega, Alpha Omega, Alpha Omega. That's his fraternity, right? Like Jesus has always existed. He was in the beginning. He will always exist, but he's also equating himself with God. He's given himself the same title that God the Father just gave himself. Now, just in case we think that that's just a cute title, like does anybody else have the authority to claim, oh yeah, I'm the first, Right? Like, does anybody else have the authority? Like, yeah, before angels, before heaven, before the world, before light, before anything else, I was. I was there. I was present. Jesus is saying, hey, I existed with the Father. It wasn't that I was created from God the Father. I existed with God the Father. I am the first, not the second, not creation, the first. I am with him. I am equal in authority with God. God the Father and God the Son both have equal authority. They were both preexistent before anything that we know. This is important. Because Jesus is saying, the author of Revelation is saying, look, Jesus is God, okay? Let's look at a couple of more. Go to John chapter 1. So John chapter 1, pick it up in verse 1. It says, in the beginning was the word, 
And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, real quick, jump down to verse 14 so we look at who we're talking about. Verse 14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So this is the Son from the Father, okay? The word became flesh. We know that God the Father never put on flesh and walked amongst us. That was Jesus Christ that did that. He's the one that put on flesh. So the word is Jesus in this text. Now, if you go back to verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the word. Like the word was there from the beginning. And the word was with God, present there with God, and the word was God. Jesus was both with God and he was God himself too. Jesus is eternally existent. Jesus was God, okay? And so this is important for us because John starts off the book saying, hey, look, Jesus is God. Like, that's what I want you to know about this book. John, the author, is saying, look, I I want you to see that Jesus has always existed and that Jesus is indeed God. So in the book of Revelation, we see that Jesus is God. Here in John's gospel, we see that Jesus is God. What about what Luke wrote? Go to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. Uh, Pick it up in verse 28. It says this. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Once again, did God the Father ever come and die? No, that's not what anything in scripture tells us. That's not anything in history tells us. We read that Jesus Christ, the son came and died. And so when it says that God purchased the church with his own blood, we must be thinking that Jesus then is God. Are you tracking with that? It says God purchased with his blood, but Jesus is the one that died and spilled out his blood, so it must have been that Jesus is God. Go to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, this is Paul talking now to Titus, a pastor, he's trying to tell him how to lead his church. Verse 13, it says, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Once again, Scripture lays out that Jesus is the one who is going to return. Jesus is the one who will come back again. Not God the Father, God will send the Son, but Jesus is the one that's going to appear. And here his appearing, he calls him God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is our God. Jesus is our Savior. Jesus has always existed as God, okay? Um, One more. Flip over two books to Hebrews chapter 1. This is probably one of my favorite ones, all right? Hebrews chapter 1. I'm going to read the first part of verse 5 so you can see who's talking here, but we're going to focus on verses 8 and 9. So verse 5, it says, For to which of the angels did God ever say? So God the Father is talking here, okay? Which of the angels did God ever say? Now jump down to verse 8. But of the Son, he, or God, but of the Son, God says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your your companions. So God calls Jesus God. All right? Unless God is speaking of himself in some really, really, really strange third-person kind of context which would be a little bit awkward even in this setting, right? Like God is calling Jesus God. 
That's pretty awesome. And so John thinks that Jesus is God. Luke thinks that Jesus is God. Paul thinks that Jesus is God. And God thinks that Jesus is God. That's a pretty strong argument for Jesus being God. Would you agree? Like when God says, I think that Jesus is God. Like we should probably listen to that then, right? So God the Father is saying, look, this is what I think. I think that Jesus is God. Okay, but what does Jesus think about himself? So we see all these other people, but what about Jesus? What does he say? Go back to the Gospel of John, chapter 10. And we're going to pick it up in verse 30. John chapter 10, verse 30 says this. I and the Father are one. So Jesus says, okay, I and the Father are one. Now, some critics would say that Jesus isn't really saying that he's God here. He's just kind of equating his works with God. He's just saying, hey, me and God have, we're on the same mindset. We're on the same path. We're kind of like each other, okay? But just in case that's what would be assumed, read the rest of this. Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy because you being a man make yourself God. So if Jesus wasn't trying to say that he was God, he sure as heck fooled the Pharisees, right? Because the Pharisees are like, I think you're saying you're God, okay? And Jesus is kind of almost toying with them like, hey, what are you going to stone me for? Which good work? They're like, we don't care about your good works. You're saying you're God and you're just a man, And so the Pharisees definitely thought that Jesus was proclaiming that he was God. Jesus seemed to be very purposefully saying that he was indeed God. This is important, okay? Keep going, uh, or go back to John chapter 8, verse 58. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him because Jesus had hid himself and went out the temple. Once again, the Pharisees seemed to really think that Jesus was calling himself God here, right? Now, if you look at that sentence structure, it should read, before Abraham was, I was, if that's what Jesus is trying to say, okay? Like, I existed before Abraham. But Jesus is not just trying to say, hey, look, I existed before Abraham. He's trying to say, hey, listen, I am God. I am, in uh, uh, the Hebrew is the name Yahweh. That's what Yahweh means, is I am. And so when Jesus says, before Abraham was Yahweh, he's making a declaration about the fact that he is indeed God. That he has always existed, he was before Abraham, but not just before Abraham, that he was indeed God. And the Pharisees tried to stone him for that. And so Jesus says that he is God. So Jesus clearly thinks that he is God. So Paul thinks that Jesus is God, Luke thinks that Jesus is God, John thinks that Jesus is God, God thinks that Jesus is God, and Jesus thinks that he is God. That's pretty strong evidence for Jesus being God. I think scripture is really clear that this is what we think, this is what Christians think, we think that Jesus is God. There's a ton of other scriptures we could pull out, but I'm sure y'all are tired of me going through scriptures already, all right? And so let's talk about that. What does that mean for us? Scripture is clear that Jesus has always existed as God. He was not just a man that lived 2,000 years ago, but he pre-existed before the earth. He has always been, he was, and is, and is to come, just like Revelation says about him. Scripture is clear. The point one, then, is that Jesus is God, That's what point one, that's what scripture tells us, that's what it commands us, is that Jesus is God. But, 
okay? At the exact same time, Jesus was also a man that lived 2,000 years ago. And so our second point that we're going to get on is that Jesus was a physical, literal human who suffered and died and rose again. While on earth, he was fully God, yet at the exact same time, he was fully man. Theologians call this the hypostatic union. There's your 10 cent word for the day, okay? If you want to take that and sound smart, you can put that in. Hypostatic union, okay? It means that Jesus was 100% man and 100% God at the exact same time when he lived on earth. Now, there are certain things in the Christian faith that kind of make my brain want to like explode, all right? And this is one of them. Really, it's like explode and implode at the same time, okay? You math, math, mathematicians are like, that's physically impossible, all right? Well, no, it's not, okay? Like, this is crazy when you actually begin to think about it. Like, when you think that Jesus was 100% man, 100% God, I, I don't know how those two kind of coincide at the same time. How are you 200% something? I, I, I don't know. You're not. But the scripture's really, really clear, of this, that this is who Jesus is. You know how like when you're working on like a Windows computer and all of a sudden you just get the blue screen, right? Like that's what your brain should kind of do when you hear that truth, okay? Like, uh, I don't get that, <laughs> right? Or like the, the, the spinny wheel of death if you have a Mac, right? It's like, no, right? Jesus is 100% man, 100% God, which uh, really quickly, quick side note, okay? Uh, I often say that there are things uh, in the scripture that should sort of be outside of your mind that doesn't make 100% sense to you. That is actually proof that you're probably on the right track when it comes to thinking about God. Here's why I say that. If you can, in your little tiny human brain, comprehend all that there is to know about God, you're probably not beholding God. You're probably beholding yourself. <laughs> because we don't even know what's going on in children's ministry right now, right? Unless one of you guys has some weird power that I don't know about. Like, we can't see what's going on with our kids, right? Let alone what's happening on the mountains, let alone what's happening in China, let alone what happened 7,000 years ago or 5,000 years from now. But God knows all of those things. God is outside of us. And so if somehow our brains have fully figured out God, then we probably aren't beholding God. But if there are things like this where it kind of makes sense to us, but at the same time it's this great kind of divine mystery, then we're probably beholding something. We're probably on the right track, <laughs> And so the fact that Jesus was 100% man, 100% God, that we can't fully understand that, but we see the importance of it, probably shows that he is God. Because God has chosen to make himself known to us, right? But at the same time, he's still far bigger than us. He's mysterious. He's beyond us, okay? And so a quick side point. Let's get back on track. Help the Lord, all right? Jesus was not eternally existent, but he, or he was not only just eternally existent, but he lived on the earth as a physical, real, literal human being. He was not some spirit. He was not some ghost. He lived on the earth as a human being. The historical account of Jesus is true. Now, I'm not going to spend as much time on this one as we just did about Jesus being God, um, because I think that uh, most of all of history points to the fact that Jesus was a literal, physical man. There are very, 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 very few people who doubt that Jesus actually existed. Uh, for many years, people would reject the claims about Jesus, but as science and, and our history and archaeology has gotten better and better, the case for Christ being an actual man has gotten stronger and stronger, okay? And so secular, non-Christian historians like Josephus wrote about the works of Jesus and, and what Jesus did. Even more, uh, there are no recordings of writings in the first century that uh, disclaims who Jesus 
Jesus was. Are, are you tracking with that? Does that make sense? Uh, like there's nothing that was written down that was like, uh, Jesus didn't actually exist, okay? Because think about it. If the whole world was being changed the way that Jesus changed the whole world, if people were like, look, we saw Jesus and he was a man, and he did all these miracles and then he lived and died and rose and now we're all following him. And if that wasn't true, you would think that somebody would be like, ah, that didn't happen, right? And there'd be writings about it, okay? But there are no evidential writings found that somebody is disclaiming Jesus, not until like the fifth century, which bro, you were 500 years too late, man, right? Like Jesus is his, okay? So most people would say, hey, look, it's pretty accurate that we know that Jesus existed as a man. So whether an atheist, somebody who doesn't believe in God at all, or a Hindu or a Muslim or, or a Buddhist or a Christian or whatever it may be, most people realize that the man of Jesus Christ existed. Like, like Jesus was actually present, okay? The question is, did Jesus resurrect from the dead? That's the question. Not if he existed or not, but if he actually did the things that scripture claims that he did. One of the reasons that uh, uh, I, I love thinking about Jesus, that as our science has gotten better, over the centuries, people have said things like one of the biggest arguments, particularly like in the 15th, 14th century, for not believing in the physical, literal person of Jesus is because they would say, well, hey, the, we, we can't find a tomb with any description of Jesus of Nazareth. I don't think y'all caught that. We can't find a tomb of Jesus of Nazareth. And Christians are like, uh, yeah, that's what we're saying. There is no tomb to be found. He resurrected. He rose again, right? And as science has gotten better, we've begun to realize that, okay? But uh, this is important, okay? Tim Keller says this about the resurrection. Sometimes people approach me and say, I really struggle with this aspect of Christian teaching. I like this part of Christian belief but I don't think I can accept that part. So they're, they're wrestling with something. Uh, I really like what Christianity says about good works, but I really don't like what it says about adultery or about anger or whatever. I like this part, but not this part. Tim says, I usually respond, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teachings, but whether or not he rose from the dead. If Jesus' resurrection was true, it means we can't live our lives any way we want. But it also means we don't have to be afraid of anything. Not Roman swords, not cancer, nothing. If Jesus rose from the dead, it changes everything. Now, once again, there are several different biblical, philosophical, practical arguments about the resurrection of Jesus, but I want to look at one of my favorite ones, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, um, and we're going to pick it up in verse 3. Paul's writing to the Corinthian church, okay? And listen to what he says here. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. 
Keep going a couple verses. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me. Okay? So Paul is saying over 500 people saw the resurrection of Christ. And not like at one time, because it would be easy to say, well, they were all seeing a hallucination. Right? Like, like there was some like really potent drug in the air, and they all start sniffing it, and they're like, whoa, Jesus. Like, no, that's not the only thing. 500 people saw him. Cephas saw him by himself. The 12 saw him. James saw him. Paul saw him. All these people at different times and different places in history saw that Jesus had resurrected from the dead, which by the way, okay, this also kind of disproves the whole uh, uh, swindle theory that, that, that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. He just got really, really hurt and then he hopped up again because here's what they're saying. Jesus just appeared and started walking around like, hey guys, I'm Jesus, okay? You ever watch a movie, um, or like a show like 24 or something like that, James Bond, where like somebody will get shot like 17 times, like their whole left side of their body just gets shot. And then the next scene, they're just kind of like, hey guys, let's go. And they're like ready to go all of a sudden, right? You know what I'm talking about? Like that's so fake, right? Jesus was just walking around saying, hey y'all, how are y'all? Walking around, sitting down, eating meals, walking with his disciple for seven miles, if Jesus had just been crucified, which many people saw him crucified, he was on top of the hill for everybody to see, and then he shows up and everything's a-okay, they know that something is up. They know that there must be something divine happening here. 500 people saw him. Listen, if you go to court and you have 500 witnesses behind you, like I don't care if the defense's lawyer is Johnny Cochran, they're not winning, right? Like, you are going to win if 500 people say, yeah, this is what I saw, okay? This is what I saw. And so it's important to see, look, this is, like, many, many brothers saw the resurrected Jesus. This is one of my favorite arguments for the fact that Jesus actually rose, okay? Now listen, it was not beneficial to say that you saw Jesus at that time. And so it also wasn't like, a, like something that was beneficial to proclaim. Like, it wasn't something you wanted to sign your name on saying, yeah, yeah, that was me, like, you ever gotten those, uh, those class action lawsuit cards where it's like, our records show in the past seven years you've consumed Powerade. If so, there's a lawsuit against them. Sign here and you get like $10 or whatever, right? You know what I'm talking about? Okay? I always sign those bad boys, all right? I'm like, I sure as heck drunk some Powerade, right? I don't know why I chose that over Gatorade, but I drank it, right? And this, it was not like that. It was not beneficial to sign your name saying, hey, yeah, look, that's me. Like, you were killed for your faith. So the fact that 500 people were saying, yeah, I saw the resurrected Jesus, that's a powerful thing. 10 of the 11 apostles died for their faith, crucified upside down, their skin filleted off of them, thrown off buildings, lit on fire, drugged behind chariots, like not just died, died in torturous, crazy ways. And people are still saying, I can't help it. I saw Jesus. Like I, I have to follow him. I saw him. Right? The only apostle that didn't die, the apostle John, was boiled alive. And then he did not die from being boiled alive. And so they sent him on a deserted island to die by himself, which is almost worse than just dying. Right? Like he was essentially a martyr too, just not physically died. You were killed for your faith. And Paul's saying, look, there are 500 brothers and sisters that saw him. Just ask them. Just ask them. We saw that Jesus rose from the dead. Not only could being a Christian get you killed at that time, but it could also kick you out of every single one of your social circles. And so you were kicked out of the temple if you said that you believed in the resurrection of Jesus. 
religion was very, very big for the Jews. So the fact that they would be willing to be kicked out of the temple was massive. You couldn't do trade a lot anymore because Christianity was turning trade upside down and, and people didn't really like Christians and what they were doing. And so, man, these people are, are saying, look, I saw Jesus, I saw Jesus. Many, many people saw him rise from the grave, too many of them. This is why despite all persecution and despite all odds, Christianity exploded. Listen to me very clearly. There was no benefit of being a Christian back in that day, unless the claims of Jesus were true, then there was all the benefit in the world because you can have eternal life and hope in Christ. But your physical life was taken away from you. The fact that this many people turned to Christ must have meant they saw something that was true. Lee Strobel was a, a reporter um, who was doing this account that he was going to disclaim Jesus. And so he was going to do all this study and he was going to disclaim the works of Jesus. He was a really, really hardcore atheist. And he went around and was interviewing a bunch of different people. And in the process of trying to disprove Christianity, he converted to Christianity which is very similar to C.S. Lewis, who we'll also read a quote from later. But many people, when they try to disclaim it, when they actually look into the, the truths of it, they end up turning to Christ. Lee Strobel said this, if Jesus is the son of God, his teachings are more than just good ideas from a wise teacher. There are divine insights on which I can confidently build my whole life. If Jesus did rise from the dead, he's still alive today and available for me to encounter on a personal basis. If Jesus is who he claimed to be, and remember, no leader from any other major religion ever pretended to be God, as my creator, he rightfully deserves my allegiance, obedience, and worship. Jesus not only has eternally existed as God, but he also existed on earth as a man. And not only this, but he died and he rose from the grave. This is profound. Friends, Jesus is the one who was. He has always existed in eternity past, and he was a man that lived and died and rose again. Now, point three, what does that mean for us? Okay, if these are true, in light of everything we just said, then what does that mean? Well, good question. I'm glad you asked, all right? Paul said that this was of first importance here in 1 Corinthians this is the most important thing he's saying, that Jesus is who he claimed to be, that the works that Jesus did were full and complete. If Jesus is who he claimed to be, then Jesus can give us eternal life. Jesus can give us eternal life. We can have a relationship with God. He can give us every single thing that our hearts have been aching and craving for. He can give us meaning. He can give us value. He can give us identity. He can give us freedom. Listen to me, friends. He can give us life. Like Jesus can give us life eternal if what he said is true. There are quite literally hundreds, and I mean this, hundreds of, uh, of benefits of following Jesus. There are hundreds of things that Jesus can give us. But I want to look at just one truth today because I think it's the most crucial truth. Okay, John chapter 14, and this will be the last piece of scripture we look at too. John chapter 14, uh, let's pick it up in verse 6. John 14, verse six. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Friends, if Jesus is God, 
then these truths that he just spoke about is vital. The only way that we can be assured that we will live with God forever is if we place our hope and our faith in Jesus. There's no other way to the Father, Jesus says. There's no other way into a heaven. This is eternal life. Jesus' claims are eternal life. Why? Okay, why? Because think about this. Only God can pay for or atone for sins, right? Like, like man has offended a holy God. If God is righteous the way that every single religion claims that their God is righteous, including Christianity, if God is righteous, then only God can atone for or pay for man's sins. Man was separated from a relationship with God when we chose to go our own way, to have nothing to do with God, to push back against him, to not listen, to not submit, and therefore, only God can atone for that. We're not good enough. We're not strong enough. Our works are not sufficient enough ourselves to have an eternal relationship with the God of the universe. So God has to offer this to us. God has to be willing to extend his hand to us. And God has offered this gift to us through Jesus Christ. God says, I love you. What we talked about last week, right? I love you. I, I want a relationship with you. And he's offered us that through Jesus. Christ says, if you come to him, if you believe in him, if you give your life to him, if you submit to him, then you can have life eternal. Not just living forever, but living forever in the goodness, the grace, the mercy, the beauty, the splendor, the love of God. What our hearts long for, you can have that for all of eternity. At the same token though, okay, don't miss this. So God has to atone for man's sins. At the same token, a man has to pay for man's sins because it was man that sinned. Are you tracking with that? Like, like a fish can't pay for man's sins, right? Because man is the one that offended God. So Jesus being a man who suffered and died is paying for man's sins. And this is the beauty of the gospel. Man has to pay for man's sins. So only God can reconcile us to God and only man can pay for man's sins. So then what hope do we have? Jesus. This is why we worship a God like Jesus. This is why we exalt him. This is why we sing songs to him. This is why we gather together because only Jesus Christ is sufficient enough for our eternal life. This is a beautiful truth. The historical pre-existent word became flesh, Jesus, is God. And as God, he can atone for man's sins. But Jesus also became a man and lived and died and rose so that he can pay the penalty for sins. He's both the one that offers it to us and the one that pays it for us. He's the priest and the lamb, scripture says. He is God who can give us salvation and offer it freely because he's the one that paid for it. This is why we worship a dead but risen savior because of his claims. Because this is the only thing that makes sense. Because Jesus is true. Think about it like this. What other religion offers this hope? Atheism says you just die and then you cease to exist. So what our hearts kind of crave, true meaning, true value, true purpose can't be found in that. Think about somebody like Gandhi. Gandhi was a great man. I mean that. Did a lot of good works. But did Gandhi ever resurrect from the grave? And so if you follow Gandhi, how can you be sure that you will resurrect from the grave? There's no promise there. We, we don't know. We don't know if it's true or not because we have not seen him resurrect. Muhammad, same thing, 
right? He said a lot of good things, did a lot of good things, but he never resurrected from the grave. He died and stayed dead. So how do we know if following them, we will die and resurrect? We don't know that. There's no proof. Or you look at other gods, right? Hindu gods, they they say they're holy. They say they offer us life, but have they ever atoned for man's sins? Then how can we be brought into the presence of a holy God? Or Allah, Allah is this holy, exalted God, but there's no payment for sin with him. We have to just try to be good enough, but if he's as holy as it says that he is, we can't be good enough. There's no hope in that. But in Jesus, there is hope. Because Jesus both paid for our sins and is a holy God that exists. He is real. He's how we have eternal life. This is why we worship and and exalt Christ and believe in the goodness of the gospel. With Jesus, we have both. God reconciles us to God. Man pays for sins. Jesus is both of those for us. And by placing our trust in Jesus, by aligning with him, by believing in this, we have the eternal life that Jesus Christ offers. So what do we do with that? Okay, what do we do with that? There are three simple truths for all of us in here today. If you have not placed your faith in Jesus, the free gift is offered to you. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one can come to the Father but through me. But then he offers his life to all, that whoever will believe in him can have eternal life. Friends, eternal life is offered to you Jesus loves you. That's why he went and died on the cross for you. Not just punished us and sent us to hell forever, but he loves you. He wants you to know him. He wants you to have a relationship. And so you can choose even today to place your faith in him, to stop trying to do it yourself. A lot of times our pride will shut us off from believing that we even need this. But this is the beauty of the good news. We need it. We are condemned before a holy God, but made righteous through Jesus Christ. And by placing your trust in him, you can have that gift. For some of you, you have placed your trust in Jesus, but you live your life as if none of this is actually true. It's like you got the get out of hell free card, and then that's it, right? Like, oh, I'm not going to hell now when I die, great. But then you live your life as if none of this is actually true. Friends, this message has to impact the way that we live if this is a true message. By believing in this, our whole lives are are altered and changed. We submit, we give ourselves over to Jesus, not just out of a begrudging, now I have to follow a law, but by believing in Jesus, we have eternal life, life right now and life to come. And so the gospel actually impacts everything about us. It changes the way we work. It changes the way we're married. It changes the way we're parenting. It changes the way we are neighbors. It changes everything about us for the better. We can't live our lives just as if salvation is the only thing that matters because our lives matter. Our lives have meaning and purpose here. And if you want your utmost meaning and purpose, your utmost joy and satisfaction, that can only be found in Jesus because only he has the claims of eternal life. And so for some of us that live our lives as if Jesus didn't do anything, we have to be humble. We have to submit. We have to confess our fault and come back to the beauty of the gospel in Jesus. And for some of us, we believe in Jesus. And though we fall and stumble, though, though, though we have pain and losses at times, we're trying to live our lives in light of that. And let me just say this to you all. Man, take heart. Because Jesus has overcome the grave. 
And so no matter what hell you think you're going through now, Jesus already defeated hell for you. You will reign with him forever. I don't know how you're suffering. I don't know how you're discouraged. I don't know. But the gospel gives us life. Persevere. Stand strong. And then as you continue to submit yourself to this truth, as you continue to submit yourself to the gospel, you need to make that love known to others. This is eternal life. Paul says this is of first importance. This is above our marriages, our jobs, our, 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 our money, our, our whatever it may be. Like the gospel of Jesus Christ is of first importance. It is of first value. It's the only way we have life eternal. And so let us worship God for that and then live our lives in light of that, having a hope even through suffering that he has overcome the grave and by that we will overcome. Let me end with this. C.S. Lewis uh, said this, and I'm sure many of you have heard this before. C.S. Lewis said, I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. It's Jesus. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. Make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus is either a liar He's a lunatic who thought he was God, or he is Lord. And we have to choose one of those three. But if we make him Lord, our whole lives are changed, and we have life eternal. I love you guys. Let's pray.